Hello and welcome to a special episode of No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. Brought to you by ACCESS, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. I'm Jennifer Macy. Guitars inspire cult-like devotion among their owners and players. An aficionado can tell you precisely when and where their favourite instrument was made, the wood that it's made from, and how that wood affects the sound of the instrument. So what happens when two human geographers decide to follow that fascination around the globe and trace guitars all the way back to the tree? Professor Chris Gibson and Dr Andrew Warren are human geographers with access at UOW and work at the interface of economy, culture and environment. And both play the guitar. In their new book, The Guitar, Tracing the Grain Back to the Tree, Chris and Andrew go on an epic six-year research adventure through forests, sawmills, ports and factories around the world. They meet the foresters and the highly skilled guitar makers to get the behind-the-scenes stories and insights into how guitars are made. And they explain how the story of the guitar is set against a backdrop of natural resource exploitation and conservation. Chris and Andrew recently talked about their quest at the Entanglements Lecture Series hosted by ACCESS, the Animals Studies Research Network at UOW and the Wollongong Art Gallery. The panel discussion was hosted by Dr Nicole Cook, also a human geographer from ACCESS and another guitar aficionado. This episode was recorded live at the Wollongong Art Gallery on May the 6th, 2021. Welcome to everyone here. So I thought we could start with a reading from the book just to give you a sense of um, the stories that are contained therein. Okay, so in May 2014, it was our good fortune to be in Hawaii launching a book about surfboard making. And one topic of that book was the renaissance of Hawaiian wooden boards. Speaking at the launch was Tom Pahaku Stone, a proud activist and Hawaiian craftsperson who ceremonially blesses trees before felling them to make surfboards and halua sleds in the traditional Hawaiian manner. Now, for centuries, Hawaiians have used native woods to fashion outrigger canoes and surfboards, the breadfruit breadfruit tree, ulu, candlenut tree, kukui, and koa. Koa is sacred, Tom explained to us. Its name means brave. Koa is is the tree, but it's also a word for warrior. The conversation turned to musical instruments. Being music buffs and and guitar nerds, we mentioned that koa featured prominently in early ukuleles and is prized in guitar making. After the launch, Tom suggests, would you like to see some trees? So from the Big Island's lush Kona coast, we headed inland over rough fields of aa, which is black lava, onto a windswept high plateau. What was once ahopua, which is native territory with dry land taro patches, irrigation ditches and ancient forests was now desolate rangelands enclosed and eroded by cattle ranches. Tom signalled to pull over, pull the car over on the verge. There was a single willy-willy tree stunted and holding on for life against the dry, gusty trade winds. Now willy-willy trees were the most prized because of their light weight and resistance to waterlogging. Tom tells us this. Now from willy-willy prized olo which were large giant surfboards were made. Never particularly abundant trees, trees now of sufficient size were incredibly rare. This is what many Hawaiian forests have been reduced to, says Tom. Isolated from its nourishing native ecosystem and custodians, the willy-willy tree was unlikely to survive into old age. This is a lonely tree, Tom explained. Kukui, Ulu and Koa have suffered similarly as a consequence of ranching and urban development, loss of native lands and unregulated log poaching. America and its military were good at taking things from native people, our land, our customs, our resources, says Tom. We discussed shortages of other guitar timbers, old-growth spruce, rosewood, mahogany, ebony. Just three years earlier, Gibson Guitars was raided by federal agents 
in connection with endangered species wood trading. While Tom and other Hawaiian board makers struggled to find suitable trees, across the world the guitar industry appeared caught in a similar crisis. So as one research journey drew to a close, we realised that a new one was about to begin. This book, which the box of which arrived today, woohoo, tells the story of what unfolded next. We agreed to research and write about guitar making and timber, the industry and its environmental problems. We read guitar histories and digested prior academic analysis, bought lots of guitar magazines and read them too. Something I did anyway, but did more of that. Um, And we decided that visits to guitar factories would be essential. Then Andrew asked, what if we could follow the guitar even further to its forest origins? From factories, we could go to the sawmills that supply them. And from there, what if we could witness the trees from which guitars are made? Our enthusiasm grew the more we discussed personal and academic motivations. Guitar histories invariably deify iconic, often or mostly male, player heroes like Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton. Path-breaking guitar-building entrepreneurs such as Leo Fender and Bob Taylor are also celebrated. For musician Chris, for me, uh, and for the record, I'm no relation to Gibson guitars, by the way. Chris Gibson, nothing to do with Gibson guitars. Um, For me, writing this book was an opportunity to meet the guitars unheralded behind-the-scenes folk. For Andrew, with his family's uh, three generations of timber cutting, it would provide a chance to connect with the world of wood. We hoped that visiting forests, sensing them with their sights, sounds and smells, could bring into prominent view other guitar heroes, the workers and the trees. Humanities and social science researchers have questioned the credibility of so-called detached academic analysis, advocating instead for reflexive and embodied perspectives that describe relationships and place authors in dialogue with research subjects. Environmental historian Tom Van Doren, for example, proposed bearing witness to threatened places, plants and animals as a distinctive ethical stance, fueling new forms of curiosity and understanding, new relationships, and so new accountabilities. So we committed to travelling as widely as small grants and work schedules would allow us, documenting the lived experience of factory workers, sawmillers, foresters, and Indigenous custodians, and the shifting forces that shape working lives in the guitar industry. We hope that encountering firsthand the people, places, forests, and trees behind guitars would would enable us to write as an act of response in an effort to craft better worlds with others. And so, inspired by geographer Ian Cook's research methodology to follow everyday things, our goal crystallised, to start with the finished guitar and trace it in rewind to its origin places, people and plants. We began by visiting our local guitar store in Sydney, Australia, the legendary Sunburst Music. On display were new and used guitars at different price points, affordable guitars for beginners, mid-range models for more confident players, and for professional musicians and collectors, valuable vintage rarities. Sunburst's founder and owner, Doug Clark, who's always attired in cowboy boots and a hat, and always keen for a yarn, was immediately on side with our concept. Start with that guitar, he said, as Chris played a Cole Clark acoustic guitar, not exactly the one down here in front of the stage, but the same brand, uh, made from California redwood and Tasmanian blackwood. This one down here is mostly uh, Tasmanian blackwood. Doug jotted down a phone number on the back of a business card. Why don't you just give Miles at Cole Clark a call? A few weeks later, we presented ourselves at Cole Clark's Melbourne factory, concealed in a sprawling mid-century suburban industrial estate. Meeting us was Miles Jackson, uh, Cole Clark's CEO. Such shunning a suit for blue jeans and an untucked shirt, Miles didn't resemble the typical company executive. He took the morning off to show us around. We saw materials and manufacturing techniques, learning how guitars are assembled, and what differentiates budget from mid-range and high-end models. We then asked, where does the wood come from? Can we contact their suppliers? Miles seemed understandingly reticent to divulge commercial details to a couple of nosy academics. But after some arm-twisting and assurances of discretion, phone numbers were scribbled on a scrap of paper, along with, talk to Bob, contact Murray, Dave's your man. Still sceptical, Miles suggested... You might be biting off more than you can chew. This industry can be very secretive. Almost as an afterthought, he added another word of warning. Some of the wood people out in the sawmills and forests are, well, difficult. Our task did prove more complicated and vaster than first imagined. What makes a guitar cheap or expensive isn't a straightforward function of production volume or timber quality. At Martin Guitars alone, according to its longtime woodshop manager, Linda Davis-Wallen, 
Wood comes from countries on six continents and as many as 30 different vendors at any given time. Many sources of guitar timber are places with legacies of environmental conflict, colonial violence, and indigenous injustice. Spruces from the Pacific Northwest, rosewoods from Brazil, Madagascar, and India, mahogany from Fiji and Central America. After the early visit to Colclark in Melbourne, our project took an unexpected and expansive turn. Improvising travel schedules, we took side trips from conferences and detours from family holidays. And some of that family is uh, here with us today and uh, were present uh, or rolled their eyes at some of those detours. Um, detours from family holidays to visit factories, sawmills and forests. It was bewildering, but also adventurous and energising. Six years later, we describe in the book our travels and the places and characters encountered along the way. The book is laid out as a journey from guitar to factory factory to sawmill, sawmill to forests, and eventually to the trees, and travels historically and geographically, tracing the people, ideas, and materials of guitar making. At each stage, we ask questions about work, skill, and environmental burden. Imperial and corporate power form backdrops against which we met solo operators persisting precariously at the margins of industry and society. We learn about timeless skills, cooperation, and devotion to a craft, as indigenous myths and sacred places juxtapose with ignominious, cases of exploitation and loss. And above all, there's a lurking sense of uncertainty about a future unsettled by scarcity and impending climatic tumult. All is not calm in the worlds of guitar making, timber and forests. There is apprehension and anxiety as the ethereal realm of music comes face to face with the larger forces of colonialism, capitalism and planetary scale environmental change. It sounds like you were on an amazing journey for that kind of those years. I guess I'm someone who has loved listening to guitar music in my life. I play a little bit. I love my own guitars. Um, but I've never really thought about what is behind the guitars and the objects that I have loved. And so I know the starting point of your journey was at Sunburst Music in Sydney. And uh, then you went to Cole Clark Guitars in Melbourne. And so... Andrew, I wondered whether I could start with you and just ask you what, what was there at Cole Clark Guitars? What was that manufacturing space like? And how did it compare to some of the amazing places that you went to around the world? Really good question. And I think we were fortunate in a way that Cole Clark was our first factory that we visited. And we, we really did want to understand the sort of work that's involved in putting a guitar together from wood. And Cole Clark were kind of at the time experimenting in, the, in their use of different woods. So they were in some ways, I think, on board with what we were trying to do and opened up the factory doors and allowed us really to see everything that went on behind putting a, a guitar together. So it was a revealing experience. We got to see and speak with people on the factory floor. We started in the wood shop, and that's often where we started our factory tours around the world. We got a, a sense of the different woods that they were using, the processing of that wood, and there were key workers who clearly played a really important role in sourcing the right sort of wood, in grading it, and some examples here at the front of the room of Sika spruce that's graded into different kind of qualities. And so we saw that process, and it really just gave us an appreciation for the work that was involved, that it, it wasn't merely merely being taken over by robots or automation, as you might expect. There was still lots of hand-on manual work involved in assembling guitars. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that guitars are made out of wood, that wood is still a key material to make guitars out of. Yeah. And there's a lot of care and attention that needs to go into working with wood. Yeah. And that means that there's a lot of skill that's still involved in assembling them, even in a mass-producing factory like the one at Cole Clark, which turned out about 3,000, 3,500 guitars a year wow. with a workforce of about 60. And when you went to other places around the world, was it a similar sort of combination of still hand skills, not very, you know, industrialised? Like what's, what's, what's a, another factory from somewhere else look like? Yeah, so I guess uh, CF Martin and company, which probably one of the more famous uh, guitar brands. Globally, they're a 200-year-old family-owned business. They're still family-run and operated in a small rural town in Pennsylvania, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Um, 
settled by German migrants in the 1700s. 12% of the town's population work in that factory, so it's, it's very closely associated with the identity of that town. And that factory, again, there was similar sorts of kind of, we came to call them linchpin workers, people that kind of held things together, made sure that things flowed, that production targets were met. And there was robotics and automation and really interesting technologies that were part of the production process. There was still an awful lot of manual skill, technical skill in working with wood, and it was, in the case of Martin, often three generations of the same family, of course, that worked in that particular factory making guitars. Um, and they would speak about it in, in really interesting ways as, as kind of more than a job for them. It was a real pride and passion in what they were doing. Um, they took a lot of care in kind of assembling guitars and they also got to move around to different areas of the factory. So they, they really appreciated the fact this wasn't kind of mundane, dreary, doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. There's a sense of, of kind of energy to what they were doing. So that, that was... I guess, a consistent theme that we found across a lot of the different factories we went to, even large mass-producing factories with hundreds of workers on the factory floor. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that in the guitar world there is a, you know, there's a long-held tradition of guitar making which has its origins in luthery, so the same industry that, you know, historically made violins, cellos and other stringed instruments. So there are uh, community people around the world who still subscribe to making guitars in, tr- in a traditional manner, hand-carving necks. Mm-hmm. The, the funny thing about the way it happened, though, I guess, is we didn't ever think we would go that far and visit that many factories. Like, we started with Cole Clark and we were stoked to get inside a guitar factory and they yeah. gave us some details about their wood suppliers and we thought, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, there's a paper in that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then just bit by bit, the people that we came to know introduced us to others and the sort of, quote-unquote, difficult characters started to be convinced that we weren't a threat necessarily, that we were actually interested in them as people and what their work and yes. their, their story is about. Yeah. So we started to get invitations and so, yeah, we would, like Fender invited us to go to their factory, which we were blown away by and yeah. similarly with Taylor and, and Martin Guitars as well. So it was really nice to get to that point where it was just like a snowball that kept on, yes. you know, kept on going. Yes, and the snowball was taking you... And, and making you more interested in wood, which you were seeing in all of these factories and seeing these amazing kind of skill sets for dealing with and approaching wood, if you like. So you end up going to a number of sawmills as well. And what was Miles' quote that he said, you might be biting off more than you can chew? What did you discover about sawmills and did you ever work out what he meant by that? Um, I mean, there were many ways in which you can trace the wood in a guitar and paths that we never got to follow. We just realised at some point there's just many more places. We, you know, we'd need a huge research grant and we actually applied for a research grant and it got rejected. So um, this was all just done on the, you know, on the side and taking off side trips off family holidays and that kind of thing. It was a, um, there were limits to how far we could go. So you know, we knew that there was a supplier, a First Nations supplier in a very remote part of Alaska, for example, of Sitka Spruce, um, a really interesting case of an Indigenous-run enterprise that has a sawmill and supplies Sitka spruce to the industry. To get there, to get permission to, to visit would be one thing that would take quite a difficult... You'd have to visit just to get permission to be, you know, and, bro- and all the protocols around that, which would be really important to follow. Um, but then the practicalities of you know, hiring helicopters and all of that, it was just... It got beyond the, the scope of possibility with some of those things. So, in a sense, we bought, bit off more than we could chew because there were just so many other places that we couldn't in the end of the day, we couldn't get to. We tried to get to Cameroon, where there's a significant ebony-supplying sawmill that Taylor Guitars has co-invested in with a, a European wood supplier. So we were working our connections with John Steele, our ex-boss, who has done some consulting work in an African university, and he had someone he knew in Cameroon. And how do you actually get to Cameroon? And how much are the tickets? And it just did, at the end of the day, some of that stuff just became a bit overwhelming. But I guess what we did find when we went to the sawmills that we were able to visit, which were many here in Australia um, and sawmills in the US and in, the, in, in British Columbia and in the United States, is that it's an entirely different avenue for trees to become a human-made product than the sawmills that process timber that you might see on the floor or around you here in the room or 
Um, and the chairs that we sit on happen not to be made of wood. But if they were, that wood would have come through a very different avenue to get into a piece of furniture than, than the wood that we were encountering. So, and this really comes down to the difference in scale and the species of wood themselves, how they grow, where they grow. A lot of that is, is, is really, it's the tree's prerogative, actually. That it's the way the tree grows, the way it deposits cells inside its trunk. And the way that it grows in particular places means that it produces wood of a type that lends itself towards being made into chairs or furniture or, for different kinds of species, into guitars. So, um, and then how that needs to be sort of handled and processed to become a table or to become a guitar varies quite a lot, or the wood in the construction in a building. So we've got to be able to see a bit of a contrast of those things, the world of industrial forestry and industrial sawmilling as opposed to guitar sawmilling and what's involved there. So there is actually a distinction in terms of sawmills that are just there to supply guitar makers and other instruments? So is there kind of this network of sawmills around the world that are on the edges of industrial forestry that's kind of feeding yes. the musical system? Yeah, Exactly, Nicole, yes, yeah, there are. So there's, there's a few, and they tend to be small-scale operators that have now specialised purely in supplying the guitar industry. And they process the wood in a certain way, and often they are also kind of interacting with larger scale forestry as well. So in the Pacific Northwest, Sitka is not a commercial species for structural timber. Of course, Sitka is key to the soundboard, the top of a guitar. So you'll have kind of specialised guitar sawmills that will buy logs off larger forestry corporations and wholesalers. But they'll then obviously cut and process that wood in a particular way which is very different to the sort of processing that goes on in a commercial everyday sawmill, which generally has a kind of uniformity to the logs that it's cutting, whereas in guitar sawmills, there's a lot of variation in the sorts of logs that they work with, so it means that they're they're constantly having to make changes, so there's a kind of slower rhythm to what they're doing. That means that their sort of work wouldn't cut it in a fast-paced, kind of high-volume-producing sawmill that might be supplying Bunnings or a hardware department chain in, the, in North America, for example. Yeah, so we actually, in, in one of the key uh, sawmills in the book is a company called Pacific Rim Tomewoods, and they're based in the Cascade Mountains in Was- upstate Washington in the US. But they also happen to be kind of located down the road from one of the world's largest industrial scale sawmills and we just kind of happened to be driving on the freeway and kind of everywhere we could see was a huge pile of logs which were Douglas fir and hemlock two species that are used for framing houses and other structural purposes and the I would say the pile of logs was probably four or five stories high and maybe a kilometre or more long and we thought this is astonishing we kind of like I snuck in took some photographs of this yard. Hang on, hang on. The chair of our ethics committee is here. Oh, we... <laughs> oh, sorry, Nat, but that's, it had to be done. Anyway, we, we then met up with the people from Pacific Rim Tomewoods that were just down the road and supplying the guitar industry, and we said, this astonishing amount of timber being processed at this... I won't give the company's name away. He said, oh, yeah, that's about two weeks' supply. So it was kind of mind-boggling to, to look at a, a yard like that and the machinery... It was processing what looked from a distance to be kind of matchstick-sized logs, but when you got up close, sort of 10 to 12 metres long. Um, And that was two weeks' supply of this particular company's ordering. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a pretty eye-opening thing to see up close. Whereas in the case of Sitka Spruce, the entire global guitar industry uses between 250 and 300 trees. Yeah. Wow. So... uh, a kind of drop in the ocean of, of industrial forestry that's going on broadly, yeah. Yeah, the other thing is just the, the quantities involved, so that in guitar sawmills they deal with individual logs, mm. um, but they're very different, they're very big, and so a lot of that is to do with the structure of a guitar, and there might be guitar players or even guitar builders in the audience here who, for whom this is really obvious, but for those who aren't, when you look at the front of a, particularly an acoustic guitar, the front face of that acoustic guitar is comprises of pieces of wood that are cut radially or quarter sawn. So if you imagine a log and you're looking at it 
on the side, almost like this microphone. You imagine you're looking at the side, of the, uh, the end of the microphone, and that's the log. They're cut perpendicular to the, the growth rings. They need to be cut that way because you then take those thin slices of wood and you take pairs of them and open them up into what are called book-matched pairs. And so Andrew might do the pointing to them down the, below here. You can see them in pairs for those who are in the room. So this is triple A graded spruce because the growth rings, cortisone, are so uniformly spaced. So this is worth about $100 to the sawmill that processes it in terms of the sale then to the guitar company. Whereas if we go down, so from triple A, and then there's variations within a triple A graded book match set. But if we go down then to an A grade top, which is about a tenth of the price. So only 2% of a, of a log will generally yield triple A grade spruce. Most of the log is kind of A grade or B grade spruce where there's wider spacing in the growth rings of the tree and for a range of kind of technical reasons, they're not suitable to higher end, generally speaking, higher end guitars. It's to do with the, the angle of the wood that is cut on. In a sawmill, they, ideally you would, you would try to get as many of those perfectly perpendicular cuts as possible and that they would become more than likely your triple A grade cuts. But you can't do that without huge amounts of waste because between each slice, you then end up with these slithers of like wedge-shaped waste. So to make it profitable and viable to cut a log into guitar, slice it into guitar pieces, you need to be slicing as many of these as you can out of it. So you have to reach a kind of compromise with the log. You have to have enough AAA pieces that you can sell them at high value, but also have a market for the secondary pieces where the angle just goes slightly off the perpendicular. And what happens structurally inside a guitar when you do that is that the, the guitar top doesn't have the same acoustic performance because of the angle of the wood grain changes inside the, inside the actual piece of wood that's there in the guitar. So sound, the sound of a guitar being everything, um, that, that's where the value is. It's in the, it's in the grade of timber, which is in itself a function of the cellular properties of the tree and the way that that's being cut, and which is in itself a function of the fact that the trees have grown in a very particular place where they've been and able to grow very large with really regular annual rainfall, like in the Pacific Northwest. You know, the whole cliche about the grunge scene and Nirvana, and it always rained. And well, one of the functions of that is that it, that rain enabled those Sitka trees to deposit the cells in a very particular, even nice, beautifully aligned way, which is exactly what you need for, for guitar making and for other stringed instruments as well. Um, so we learned a lot about that, yeah. all kinds of intricacies around, like, yeah, slicing logs and arcane bits of kit that they use to, um, and measurements that they use to test the density and other calculations of what's going on inside a log. But it's where we really came face-to-face -face with big trees and realised that, um, again, these resource pathways are really quite different and in some ways disturbing because what we are necessarily for structural and engineering and acoustic reasons are relying on here are old trees. So these would be, typically these would be pieces of wood from 400-year-old trees so a lot of guitar players, I don't think, realise that, the age of the trees that's actually inside their guitars. Absolutely. Big revelation, I think, for a lot of us. But that does raise a question very much about the environmental legacies and debts that uh, this industry owes, but also just the conflicts that it's embedded in today. And this is a book very much that's also about scarcity, and it's about you guys engaging with scarcity and engaging with people who are engaging with scarcity as well. And I want to ask you more about that, but I also don't want to ask every question. So we're going to open to the audience, not just yet in the moment, but just to get us into that space. I think one of the really striking things about this work that you have both done is that it situates the guitar, the factory and the sawmill with respect to the world's old growth forests. And so it's really connecting in the geography world, the human and the non-human. In part two of the book, you move to the Sitka forests of Canada, and Sitka obviously is a key source for guitar production, and you embark on this journey that I think was fascinating together, where you were witnessing 400 and 500-year-old Sitka trees on Vancouver Island, and yet you describe Vancouver Island as a gritty resource extraction landscape where little old growth remains. Can you tell us about the contrasts you observed on the island and something about the battle that occurred there over Vancouver Island in 1993? What was at stake and who was involved? And how did that change what you were observing? 
Yeah, so Vancouver Island, for those who don't know, is just off to the, uh, the west of the mainland of Canada. And so you can catch a ferry there from, from Vancouver. So we did that on the recommendation of one of the main Sitka suppliers to the industry who, when we visited them, um, we just said, well, where can we, can we visit where the, where the trees are? And um, they had had some logs that had come in from Alaska and they said, well, you've got to get on helicopters and you've got to negotiate with Indigenous custodians and if you've got a good six to 12 years, you'll probably do that and you'll, yeah. you know, they'll trust you and you can get in. Um, or you can go to Vancouver Island and there's a little spot you can go where there's still old, amazing trees and they're not, they're not used for the guitar industry. They're, they're protected and they're one of the rare bits of Vancouver Island, in fact, where that is the case. Uh, but they're just along the coast from where there is another of their Indigenous First Nations suppliers mm -hmm. who do have a licence to be able to extract cut down trees in ways that accord with their principles yeah. and supply the guitar industry. So it was as close as we could get to the source, as it were, of those, those old trees. So um, it was really interesting. I mean, we, we ended up being based in a, in a port called Port Alberni, mm -hmm. which is your classic timber town, really, similar to what you'd find in the northwest of Tasmania in some ways, yeah. or in parts of Queensland that we visited as well. So a classic old timber town. Um, with a paper mill. I think the paper mill is the last of the major industrial sawmilling enterprises still going in Port Alberni. Maybe one or two other as well. But it used to be this, you know, smoke belching, um, real industrial powerhouse of, of forestry. So it had a whole range of industries based on forestry in that particular part of the island. So it was interesting to base ourselves there. And in fact, there's a little story in the book of where we turn up, we turn up to this hotel where we're staying in Port Alberni and we're waiting to check in. And in front of us, are all the heli loggers that have come in for the, for the jobs that they're on. It, it's a, a landscape that, you know, in, the, in sort of previous hundred years had been really clear felled. Wow. Uh, the industrial forestry is very much around clear felling and then replanting monocultures of, yeah. you know, singular species that you grow and you grow fast and then you cut them again. Yeah. So there's still a lot of that in Vancouver Island. But now the really high value logs, um, not so much for the guitar industry, but for other purposes, are taken out by helicopter. So the heli loggers had come in for the day. Wow. So they'd flown in from the mainland, stay in the hotel. They've got all their kind of like suitcases of kit that they've got with them as they're checking in. So they're not actually from the town. The, the work has shifted. It's yeah. very highly technical. These are helicopter flyers who go in and then take out high value trees, you know, on a singular basis and then deposit that somewhere else for processing. So, so that was kind of an interesting little insight because we were dealing with, a, I suppose, a scene that was much more um, tiny and haphazard and not not big money necessarily at all. Um, so to see that was kind of interesting. Um, and then just even to hang out at the bar of that hotel and talk to locals who, who, who drink in there. And there's just this real sense of the, the person behind the bar um, was a committed greenie who was involved in the, in the blockades that happened in the 80s and 90s, which is what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So First Nations custodians and the environmental movement joined forces in the 80s in Canada to blockade the logging roads. Yeah. So they laid themselves down in front of logging trucks to try and protect old growth forest in, in, in Vancouver Island. And it became what was known as the Forest Wars. So we were driving through, after leaving Port Alberni, we were driving through that landscape to get to this sort of last bit of the forest really that had been kept. And it had been kept as one of the outcomes of that Forest Wars, like as when it eventually got all reconciled, one of the things they did is kind of leave little bits of that forest alone, on the, but just on the coastal fringe. What happens to be that that very thin ribbon of coastal fringe is where Sitka spruce trees grow. So that's the sort of a fluke or an accident of history that that's why they ended up not being felled down. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was pretty interesting and pretty cool to do that trip. There was someone waiting for you. Um, well, not someone. Well, I guess you say it was someone. Um, something. Something uh, waiting for you. Andrew, maybe you could tell us about the, uh, the encounter that you had. Obviously, uh, we're unfamiliar with with large carnivorous wildlife walking in a forest. But we were told that the hike that we were going on to see some of the old growth Sitka uh, was likely we could encounter cougars or bears, grizzlies or black bears, and that we should stop in at a hardware store and buy some bear spray. Yeah. So I wasn't convinced that we needed it, but Chris said we should do that. So Is we that stopped in, you're a surfer? brought some bear spray, drove a few hours to, to the spot where we needed to, to start the hike from, and I'm shitting myself. Excuse me, Kalani Amala. I'm, I'm like, we're talking ourselves into, what do we do if we actually hit, like, come across a... I wasn't convinced we'd ever see a bear, to be honest. But literally, we pulled up and, of course, get out of the car. There's a bear there. 
with a cub, so it was a, a mother and, and as big as the car. It was like huge. You're kind of intimidated because the, si- the size of it was impressive. And I realised then that we did need bear spray. So after seeing that, the bear luckily looked at us, I think thought we weren't a threat, took off, ran though, into the bush where we were about to head. So I said, well, maybe we should try this bear spray and see how it works, which was a, it's a version of pepper spray in a container probably as long as a microphone. So we thought, okay, we'll give the pepper spray a try. Of course, there was a a breeze blowing as well and really not thinking too much. I think Chris let off a bit of his bear spray right into the wind, so it blew back in both of our faces. So within within a minute of, of arriving, we'd seen a bear and the practice of our bear spray had gone awry and we'd literally had pepper spray in our eyes. So that was, a, that was part of the fun. So it wasn't so much about us communing with this particular <laughs> no. element of nature as us, and we say this in the book, as us feeling like we're Australians, totally we're totally out of place, we're out of depth, we don't know where we are. So it was a bit like that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a depressing sight in lots of ways. Like Vancouver Island is amazing physically, geologically, and when you do get to the bits where forests are managed differently, it's really stunning. It's amazing, amazing forests. Like cathedrals of 500 to 1,000 year old trees and incredible um, but most of that landscape is gone and it's now this it's what neil smith talks about in second nature right it's this kind of like produced nature it's yeah, yeah. it's a landscape of like monocultural trees on hillsides they look like patchwork quilts so you can see where the cuts from different generations have happened you know a cut that was done 100 years ago has been replanted that's come up fairly high but then next to that will be one that was cut 30 years ago one that's just been clear felled yeah. and you can sort of see that on all the flanks of the mountains as far as the eye can see so it's yeah, and it's just a, a poignant kind of insight, I suppose, into, into seeing like timber goes into the stuff that we consume, but yeah. it's not all the same. And it, it, there are all of these kinds of landscape impacts that arise from that and seeing that in different ways for a very different set of products like guitars or for construction timber or whatever in the same physical place was, was yeah, it was eye-opening. And I know that it raises a lot of questions about the place of conservation, but I'm not going to ask you about that just yet. I thought there might be some questions potentially from the audience if you would like to ask or had any questions that you had for Chris or Andrew. Um, what you have described is a, an, an industry, I suppose, that ranges from the craft to the industrial. I'm wondering about the creative components. What's new that's happening in this incredibly global it, well, industry? Yeah, look, certainly the... There are many ways in which creativity winds its way through the industry, at the more craft end of the industry. Um, You find that there's um, experimentation in design, so there's lots of solo luthiers, individual guitar makers that can produce really experimental and interesting designs. So some of that is aesthetic creativity and some of it's around producing different sounds and some of it is around material experimentation. So combining different things, you know, like what if we made a guitar out of, you know, old bits of beams that have come out of a, an old building in New York or something. There's a lot of that that happens, which is a particular form of creativity, I guess. In the more mass-produced side of the industry, it takes, it takes different forms again. Uh, one of the things that I suppose we looked at and thought through very carefully in terms of like individual workers in a factory setting is not so much where creativity lies, but where a particular kind of knowledge and disposition towards wood comes about. Depending on the factory and what's being made, there's potentially less role for variations and making stuff up in different combinations in a factory setting that you might get in the, in the more craft end of it. But then interestingly, each factory has its own custom shop. So it's become quite a thing in the guitar industry to have what's called a custom shop where it's like often a physically different bit of the factory where uh, people can place custom orders for guitars that are made um, outside of the kind of regular mass-produced model. And they tend to be the, the, the roles that, uh, that people on the factory floor as, uh, aspire to, to eventually get in. So, and in those situations, then, it's again, it's like more like the solo luthier thing. You know, really interesting designs and um, creative inlay and all kinds of like, different experimentation can happen in that, in that kind of realm. Um, so we got to visit a lot of those custom shops as well. And that was part of, I suppose, the way in which skill and labour interacted in a factory setting. There was this sense of like it's not just... It's not just like a plastics factory that's extruding toothpaste lids or something. It's, yeah, it's a, a different kind of factory setting. Most of the workers are musos and there is this sense of like 
a skill I'm working with here and a knowledge of what I'm building up. And one day I might end up down there in the custom shop and do other different kinds of interesting things. Hi. Um, so I'm interested, um, it's not clear to me, what's the, what's the question or the questions you were asking yourselves when you embarked on this journey? What did you find? And were there, are you able to extrapolate that beyond the guitar sector, you know, other industries, other walks of life? We started out with quite specific questions. Where does the wood come from? What are the environmental burdens associated with that wood? How is the industry responding to scarcity? Those were the, the kind of the key questions we really started with. Um, and I think the journey ended and we wrote the book. We've got things to say in response to, to each of those. But I think that it's a really good question because what it actually um, opens up, I think, is a, a sense for us about what it was we were trying to do with the, the format of doing it this way, following the wood and... Um, a bit more of an open-ended and non-linear research process. So we had those initial questions. We found answers to them. We've, we actually published a paper before this book came out and we answered all those and we felt happy about that. But probably looking back on it and what we tried to do with the book when we pulled it together is actually commit to producing a different kind of book that was a much more open-ended. So, so really what we ended up actually with is a much more ambivalent set of observations around, you know, the tensions, the contradictions and the paradoxes of what we observed that, yeah, I mean, we say a few strident things about resource scarcity and environmental you know, burden and that kind of thing, but um, actually that's kind of counted in the book. The, the further we went, we actually started to trouble our own kind of like simplistic conclusions on some of those things. Yeah, we ended up not putting the research questions at the beginning of the book at the end of the, end of the day. It was a bit more like, well, actually, this is a journey and we started somewhere and we ended up kind of somewhere quite different and actually it's not quite so straightforward. Any of the things that we thought might have been the case to start with. Um, that's a very evasive question, answer to the question. but <laughs> I think I might just jump in there and say that I think from an outside observer, what the book, to my mind, my humble opinion, is doing is taking something that's a very kind of industrial, sort of like a manufactured process and situating it within its environmental context and looking at the tensions that emerge. But I actually wanted to ask you, first of all, about the tone of the book and hopefully that will open up some of this. So in many ways, this is a long question, everyone, so I apologise in advance, but in many ways it is very much, this book is very much of its moment. It engages with scarcity, it engages with the ills of industrialisation and colonialism and the challenges of old-growth forests, the challenges they face, and the entanglement of the guitar with those challenges are centre stage throughout. And it strikes, I would say, a minor key by which I mean a melancholy tone. There are beautiful, reflective sequences that find a really soaring melody through the book, and particularly as we move to the forests. In part, I think it is so effective because we feel so close to your experience. So you introduce us to all your participants. We know them by name. We know them through your observations of them and their work process and their observations of you and their insights into the worlds and the consequences that they are each entangled with. You seem all the way through to be cultivating relationships with people, taking time, spending time together. You cultivate a fascination with skill and craft that we can see here through observation of process, yes, but also the colours and the smells that you see and you experience. You share with us what makes you stop and what causes you to reflect. You bring your reader into the space through all these techniques, familiarity, colour, smell, care, observation and detail, so carefully and beautifully rendered with the lightest touch with the richest of effects. What I wanted to ask you about this distinctly ethnographic, geographical approach is what it allows you to do in bearing witness to threatened places, plants and animals as a distinctive ethical stance. Ah, uh, I think... Let me think about that for just a moment. Uh, maybe we didn't end up with a distinctive ethical stance. Maybe we actually came to a point where that, that sense of entanglement, that sense of um, you know, contradiction is actually is where we ended up. So you actually end up realising that you know, we care deeply about music. We feel very passionately that music is a part of all cultures and that people should have democratic access to musical instruments. And that necessarily means that you have to have mass manufacturing. It's not, you know, it's not feasible for everybody to buy beautifully handcrafted guitars. So what then comes with that is a degree of industrialisation and mass production. So that then leads to consequences upstream in, in the forests eventually. So as we started to visit and then meet people all through that process, we realised, we learn a lot about the tragedies and a lot of the, 
um, you know, the injustices that have happened historically and in the present day as well. So lots of those are in the book for each of the, the trees that we visit. But at the very same time, we realise that well, we come to meet people really ultimately and, and the forests and realise the ways in which those relationships are much more sort of shot through with ethical complexities that aren't necessarily easy to disentangle. So I think in writing the book, we, we sort of ended up in a place where we let those people, the, our descriptions of the forests, I guess, uh, to some extent speak for themselves and to allow the reader to kind of sense that, we hope, to sense that sense of ambivalence and we end up, yeah, not moralising at the end of the book that the whole industry is terrible and, you know, we've... Because the industry is depending on old growth <coughs> forests and so you would have That's had right. people who were weighing up, well, should I really be seeking out this tree and chopping it down when it takes four or 500 years to grow? Yeah, exactly. And so where do, you, where do you both end up on that line? I mean, should we be conserving these trees? Should we even be creating the guitar now that we have hip-hop? Good question, Nicole. I think uh, in the process of writing the book it brought home that, that we all live with and walk with different contradictions in our life and that, that often is in the things that we buy and use in our everyday life, the things that we consume, not really thinking about where it comes from, how it was put together. And in thinking, I guess, and in exploring this story, uh, it left us with kind of looking inward at, at some of the things in our own life. I think we also were reluctant to there's a tendency in some academic analysis to kind of project yourself as knowing the answer and as having the final say and becoming a kind of know-it-all expert in a situation. And the real world is, is often much messier. There's much more complexity to it. And I think that where I came to be with this particular story was that there are examples and there are things that are going on in the world that present an alternative vision or way of doing things in the future that wouldn't have such catastrophic impacts on people's lives or on the planet. And that a key thing is how those different examples, how that work could be stitched together in such a way that it could be a meaningful alternative to a, a model of just cutting down five, six, seven hundred year old trees, which of course are we can't do that for very much longer. Yeah. Whether we should actually be doing that now at all yeah. um, was a constant question that we had in visiting sawmills where you know, 40% of an 800-year-old sicker tree was going basically to be chipped for gardens. And it was, it was really confronting to know the guitar was absolutely embroiled and interconnected in that. And so part of it was really not kind of having a a forceful final say in how that might play out. Yeah. And I think just building on that, one of the interesting examples in the book is where we visit a sawmill in Vancouver Island in that industrial port town, yeah. but it's a guitar sawmill. So, again, it's tiny. They're just dealing with yeah. five Sitka logs on any one time rather than yeah. a half-mile long, you know, yeah. thousands if not millions of trees. So the scale's different, but, but still they're 500-year-old, 400-year-old trees. And speaking to the people that ran that sawmill... You just come to know, and it's that thing about coming to know people. It's the, it's, the, it's the beauty, the paradox, the kind of, it's the thing about doing an ethnography. Yeah. If, you, if you come to form relationships and know people, you realise a little bit more about what's, what's going on in their lives. And so in that particular case, the, 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 the family that run that sawmill, First Nations heritage, but very much part of that kind of blue-collar culture in an industrial sawmilling town, yeah. you know, that, so everything that sort of comes with that. Huge critics of the way in which the industry relies on 500-year-old trees. Once you actually spend time and you allow people to kind of open up a little bit more, yeah. if you sat them down in a room and said, we're here to do an interview and here's the participant information sheet and our first question is, how, does, how should we manage Sitka more sustainably? They'll just tell you to bugger off or just will answer the question in a way that is what you want to hear. Yeah. But spend a bit more time and people will actually start to open up and share other kinds of stories. And, and this particular person is really visibly upset, angry about the fact that, you know, it's great that the, the $100, $100 kind of piece of AAA-grade spruce is going onto a, an heirloom guitar that will be still around in 200 years' time. It will it'll be that valuable that it'll be, it'll be maintained, and that's a, an amazing thing. Yeah. But all this other stuff down here is getting compressed into um, blocks that then go put on barbecues, as you know, yeah. or it just ends up as thirty cent pieces of wood in the budget guitars that end up being made in factories in other parts of the world. Yeah. 
So the very people within the industrial complex themselves have particular views about their own resource dependencies and contradictions within that. Yeah. And it, we just felt it's important to actually allow that, that those voices to come through a little bit in the book. Yeah. Um, I'll just quickly, before we do that, open the floor once again. Does anyone, did anyone have any final question, a burning question they might like to ask Chris or Andrew? Yep, at the back. And while the microphone's going to Crystal, I'll just if I can answer your question, just very briefly, there are lots of experimentations going on around alternative timbers and manufacturing techniques. So there is a kind of culture of experiment within the industry that's trying to solve some of those problems. So it wasn't just that we ended up looking at big old trees and feeling more. No, about no, their there's lots, a hopeful element as well. That, yeah, there are yeah. different kinds of cultures of experiment going on with the industry trying to solve some of those problems. Hi, um, I wondered if you got to take any photos or connect with a tree and see it turned into um, a guitar, like an individual tree and followed the story of that one? Yeah, okay, that's a good question. The, probably the closest we got to would have been in Tasmania. Yeah, Acoustic Woods was pretty close. That was mate. That, that oh, went to yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true. We didn't see the tree before it got felled, though. No. But the guitar that's on the cover of the book is one of mine, and the, the pieces of wood in that um, were from a sawmill in Vancouver Island we visited. So it was nice to be able to kind of close that loop to get close, as it were. The closest we probably got is in the is is the blackwood that's in this guitar and in the guitar on the cover of the book, where there are three main suppliers of blackwood to the guitar industry, and we visited all of them, and two of them we were able to visit the trees that are harvested for guitars, but we weren't there when they were felled. We were we went on a scouting trip with one to a to where the next tree would be felled to be made into guitars, and that particular supplier their model is around salvaging trees that are near the end of their life on farms nearby in that particular bit of Tasmania where they uh, live and work. There's a little bit of that in the book where we visit that sawmill and, that, and they take us on to visit these trees. And that would have, ended up on, it would have ended up on the next model of guitar past the one that I bought that's on the cover of that, of that book. And then another supply, which we're going to read a story of to end actually, is in, in Victoria. Um, and that's one where we saw a tree that had just come down the day before um, that was about to be cut up into blackwood to be made into guitars here in Australia. So that was about as close as we probably got to that. And then we saw, we did see the blackwood getting cut up in the Goshen sawmill in Tasmania, didn't we? Yeah. So there's an interesting little bit in the sawmill chapter of the book where we go to an old, an old sawmill in Tassie where they've taken a tree off a farm to turn into guitars. And unlike the Pacific Rim Tonewoods in the, in the, in the US, it's a two-person team, a father and son, um, and there's a kind of poignancy to this because the region in Tasmania that, that this sawmill is based in has had all its industrial forestry collapse. So in, in Tasmania, there's been heated forest politics. There's been a real extract, extractivist kind of mode of industrial forestry there, particularly around um, paper milling. And that fell when Guns Limited, big corporation, went bankrupt, right? So in this region that you've got like collapsed jobs and the industry's like, you know, it's a really depressed area. Ironically, there's a sawmill that still survived, and it's the sawmill that supplies guitars with blackwood, and it's just two guys. And it's a 1940 saw that they're still using in a shed on a farm, and the whole thing is just done by hand. There's no measurements made. They just take the log, and then by hand, they sort of pass it backwards and forwards along this giant big, big circular saw that they have, just turning it by, by hand. It's like a, we describe it as being like a dance as they pass this log backwards and forwards. So, so that particular wood ends up on the guitars made by the two big Australian guitar makers, one of which is, is this one here. So that's about as close as we got to, to literally that, seeing that all the way through. Yeah, we got invitations to go to, we had some people invite us to head out with them to see trees getting cut, but at the end of the day, yeah, again, it was one of those things just, you know, well, I'll come back next week, we're going to go out, and it's like, well, we can't, it's another $1,000 for a flight, and we don't have that. So um, we didn't quite get to see the process as literally as, as, as what you say there. So just can you situate the new guitar industry within the guitar sales industry? Because for a long time, obviously, people have bought second-hand guitars. Different industries are changing, like a lot of people are getting rescued dogs and so on these days. Are people buying, you know, what's the kind of directionality that's happening with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, the question around second, the second-hand market, do we actually need to be making new guitars anymore? Like, if there's enough guitars in the world... What we need to do is just keep that stock of guitars and maintain them, fix them up, 
then we don't have to fell trees anymore at all. And not make crap ones. And not make crap ones, exactly. So the, in the last chapter of the book, we talk about the future of the guitar industry, and we've got some stuff in there about exactly that, that it's a sort of paradox. Like, the industry, it's still growth-orientated. It still relies on selling new guitars. However, the growth in second-hand sales of guitars are now catching up with new sales of guitars, and depending on who you believe, will overtake new sales of guitars at some point in the near future. That doesn't itself, though, come without paradoxes. Um, so the vintage guitar market is, is itself its own beast. So vintage guitars are often worth a lot more than new guitars. So the vintage guitar market is itself a kind of realm of exclusivity. The older a guitar gets, the more valuable it becomes. So a, you know, a 1958, 59 Gibson Les Paul would be three, $400,000 to buy. So they've become a kind of collector piece. They're, they're kind of tech CEOs in California buy vintage guitars and put them on the walls of their boardrooms to impress clients and that kind of thing. So um, the real question is what happens to the budget guitars that are in the world? So the, the cheaper cuts come off the same log as the expensive ones. They head into guitars that are bought in Walmart for 80 bucks that have been made in a factory in Indonesia or China or Vietnam. What happens to them is... A really interesting question and we asked people that uh, we were at a guitar festival in the US at one point and I vividly remember asking one of the world's most renowned guitar repairists this question and he said nah, they're useless throw them all in the fire the, the the way that they've been built means they can't be repaired that they're, they're they're not structurally sound like they they're not musical they're not accurate you know you'd be plowing so much time into fixing them up that you're effectively making a new guitar again out of budget materials but their budget materials to start with, their cellular properties won't work as guitars. They're, so it's, you end up in other paradoxes and contradictions as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a really interesting question. What happens to the budget guitars is a very, very open-ended question. Thank you. I think we're going to close off the questions now. Um, if you guys are happy to do a little bit more reading and just right? tell us from the part of the book that you might be reading. So this is in a section of the book right at the end. That's called An Allegory in the Odd Ways. We meet Murray Kidman at the Gellibrand River General Store on a single lane road heading into the lush forests of the Otway Ranges in Victoria, Australia. Murray has lived here all his 64 years cutting blackwood, acacia melon xylon, for 40 of those years and running his business Otway Tonewoods. He began salvaging stumps that after industrial clear felling had been pushed over to be burned. Within them was amazing fiddle and figure, the kind of patterns that you see in, in blackwood and in rosewood on guitars. Violin makers spotted this blackwood that Murray had cut one day, initially intended for furniture, and said, wow, can we have some? They took news of this wood back to the Instrument Makers Guild and it spread from there, he says. He then received a call from Mayton Guitars, a factory based in Melbourne, who ordered some blackwood and rang back excitedly, asking for everything he had. Also joining us, Rebecca Pagan has been a district forester for Western Victoria for two years, spending a couple of days a week in the office and three in the field, traversing vast swaths of the state. As we head for the forest to see blackwood trees, Rebecca briefs us on regional forest politics. State environmental assessments have shifted the balance from 20% national park, 80% state forestry, to 80% national park, 20% forestry. Amid growing tensions, blackwood is only cut in certain places in small amounts for guitars. Past T Junction, high up in the clouds, Murray indicates where to stop. A delicate muddy path leads into the forest through a small oval-shaped gap in the thick understory. We head inside. Murray walks with a distinctive limp after a terrible forest accident when rotting material under his feet gave way. After a year out of action, he's back at work. We peer through the undergrowth high up at tree crowns. Tree ferns tower over us and trunks drip with mosses and ferns and lichens. A quick local ecology lesson follows. The monarchs of this forest are Australian mountain ash, Eucalyptus regnans, the same mammoth species found in northern Tasmania in an earlier chapter of the book. Incomprehensibly huge, the mountain ash disappear into the mist above. Smaller trunks belong to hazel pomoderis, Christmas bush, and the yellow beige satin box, which Murray raves about later as the best tonewood on the planet. Blackwood trees are not quite as big as the mountain ash, but still massive. We strain to see their crown's delicate foliage. At ground level, their bark, flaky and dark, broods on columnar, it's easy to write but hard to pronounce, columnar trunks, columnar trunks that rise a dozen feet before the first branch. Deeper in the rainforest, says Murray, there are huge older trees, easily over 100 years old, with double that length of instrument-grade trunk 
before the first branch knocked. Searching for trees to harvest, Murray and his son James just walk the forests all the time, identifying potential guitar trees and then returning to them sometimes years later to cut. In their minds are a standing stock of tree memories. As Rebecca's time in the job accumulates, she soaks up this local knowledge. They discuss individual trees linked to patches of land, certain coops, tracks and drainage valleys. We come upon a tree Murray recently cut. Uh, The fallen treetop is resting just nearby. Amid the surrounding greenery, the newly cut wood is rusty red. Murray cuts the trunk into sections in situ, 650 millimetres for backs and a metre for sides. These, the magic lengths for guitars. The rounds are then cut into thick boards right here and carried out on a pillow on his shoulder. The rest of the tree is left to act as a nurse log for seedlings and critters slowly decaying into the forest floor. The whole operation is chainsaw only, helped by a splitter and wedges. Murray cuts into the trunk at two heights on opposite sides, one lower than the other. It'll fall in the direction of the side of the lower cut with the wedge taken out. In between, a band of timber is left intact, the hingewood. Even 20-ton trees with 40-inch diameters can remain upright on the hingewood. The skill is in planning the hingewood with just the right direction and width so that it goes where you want it to and doesn't split as it's falling. It's like you're walking around with an engineer's brain switched on the whole time, he says. The tree is coaxed to lean over in the preferred direction and then, boom, it falls. Elsewhere, cutters use portable mills or heavy equipment, loaders, skidders, excavators. Murray says, I don't want any machinery in the forest where I am working. It's a safety issue, but also about minimising forest damage. The method mimics the way dominant trees fall from storms at old age, opening up light for younger trees. Walking in via temporary tracks of their own making also reduces trampling, and in a year or so, it entirely grown over again. Rebecca, who has seen the scale of industrial forestry in prior roles, describes this as absolutely tiny, the lowest form of impact. Only certain coops open and close to licensed community foresters like Murray. The idea is to structure time to let the forest rest and grow. Native forestry principles aim to maintain the existing tree species balance in the forests, explains Rebecca, and use natural regeneration processes and local provenance seed. Commercial plantation forestry is heading in another direction. Big machinery, clear felling, small diameter monoculture trees. And the foresters no longer touch the trees, says Murray. They're not hand-cut. He worries that the skills necessary to hand-fell big trees are disappearing, along with the knowledge and expertise to plan and execute the drop with minimal damage. In a given patch of forest, a single tree is cut by hand, every decade or so. Murray and James cut timber to meet Mayton's kiln cycles every three months, around 50 trees annually across 40,000 hectares of designated forest park. At one point, we come across a tree stump from 15 years ago. The tree crown had long ago decomposed into the soil and above the canopy is closed. Murray says he's coming around for the third time. Rebecca remarks on walking a mile into the forest and coming across blackwood trees with small scars, possibly 30 years old, from where Murray removed an inch rectangle of bark to check for likely figure. In this way, Murray reads the trees in advance, so he fells only those most suitable and valuable, only one in 60. Later, we see one of those scars ourselves. After Murray identifies a tree he believes adheres to all known rules and guidelines, Rebecca checks GPS readings against government maps. While versed in the regulations, data and technology, Rebecca expects licensees like Murray to act with integrity and honesty. In return, she works with them and listens. She confirms that this tree meets the guidelines and they discuss the best fault direction to avoid surrounding trees. It's okay if you fell to the right, says Rebecca, but not this way. It would take it too close to the the trail. Trained as a botanist and ecologist, Murray's son James is helping to make the Tonewood Company a high-tech operation, customising apps to record information from reconnaissance to cutting. He could have gone into anything, says Murray, quietly proud, but has decided to follow in my footsteps. We watch Murray and Rebecca, iPads in hand, verify, and there's a picture of them doing this, by the way, in the book. Um, iPad in hand, verifying the process for the tree, a few miles, uh, uh, for a tree a few miles further into the forest, felled only a fortnight ago. Rebecca GPS locates it and enters the data into her system. Murray has measured the quantity of resulting wood, determining royalties paid. Comprehensive documentation is required. The government agency Rebecca works for is pursuing Forest Stewardship Council FSC certification. In a recent pre-trial, it was suggested that the controlled wood certification could be achieved here with only some minor adjustments. But they're concerned not to take too many trees each time. That's the main point of the thing. We don't want to burn out the supply, says Murray, and we don't judge trees just by how good they are for guitar timber, adds James. Every tree has the right to exist. Some trees are better left as part of the ecosystem. In Rebecca's worldview, extraction must be backed by ecological science working within parameters. We end the day at Murray's rural property. A dozen or more guitars are stored in their cases in the lounge room. Small stocks of cut blackwood are kept in the shed, their ends painted with rainbow colours. 
These are log codes that enable each board to be tracked ultimately to Rebecca's official forestry records. They also allow manufacturers to match backs and sides from the same log in the factory. Murray refuses to stockpile, though. He says, it's not my wood, it's the public's wood. I just make sure guitars get a bite. Over a cup of tea and a strum on Murray's custom shop, yellow beige satin box maintenance guitar, he lets loose about world affairs, criticising Trump, Brexit and the recently elected Conservatives here in Australia. For someone who cuts trees for a living, Murray espouses a very radical green left philosophy. Humans have wrecked the place, he sighs. Later, Rebecca tells us that Murray struggles with even felling a small number of blackwood trees each year. Sometimes he contemplates stopping cutting them altogether. Following Guitars to Forest, we encountered others like Murray coping with contradictions. Unless makers use salvaged and reclaimed timbers, trees must be felled if guitars are to be made from wood. Murray, James and Rebecca show that resource extraction need not equate to the destruction of native forest ecosystems and communities. Resource practices, commitments and relationships can be forged with ecological values rather than in spite of them. James concludes, it's a matter of intention and ecological capacity that's the difference between working with the cosmos and exploiting it. As climate science educator Blanche Furley has put it, life arises through relations. Living is always living with. There is no existence outside of ecology. In the Otway Ranges, in an out-of-the-way corner of the planet, old hands and new experts work together to navigate gentler forward paths. That was Professor Chris Gibson, Dr Andrew Warren and Dr Nicole Cook from the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. This episode was recorded live on Thursday the 6th of May 2021 at the Wollongong Art Gallery, which is on the land of the Yalauri, Wadiwadi and Darawal peoples. No Place Like is a production of Access, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong, and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. To hear more from the Entanglements live lecture series, subscribe to No Place Like wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. The link is still the same. You can find the latest research from Access on our website. Just follow the link in the podcast show notes. The Twitter handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy. Thank you to Kevin Brand, Chris Gibson, Andrew Warren and Nicole Cook for the original music. And thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.